Hello and welcome to At The Source. I'm Alex and this is Karis. This is a podcast about food stories. We love talking about food and eating it. And now we're on a mission to record and share interesting food stories from people all over the UK and beyond. Join us as we explore food in all its glory. If you're into your food and hail from the USA, chances are you've heard of Mary Sue Milliken. You might have seen her on TV as one half of Two Hot Tamales or eaten at one of her Border Grill restaurants. With a career spanning 40 years, many awards and successes, she's a real powerhouse for good food in America. As well as her TV shows, restaurants and cookbooks, she's a trustee for the James Beard Foundation and is using her voice to help empower women in the kitchen. We were incredibly lucky to catch her for a quick fire and totally unplanned recording at Abergavenny Food Festival in our little camper van. She was there to speak on a panel about the impact of the Me Too movement, some of which we touch on in this episode. Now over to the camper van. Thank you so much for joining us, Mary Sue. My pleasure. It's so exciting to be here in Abergavenny. Did I say that right? You (laughs) did. Have you been to the have you been to Wales before? Never. And the UK as a whole? I have been to the UK many times and I, I love it here. So we always start the podcast with one specific question. What is your first memory of food? Wow. You know, it's funny because it's a kind of a folklore in my mom, my home. I was the third of three daughters and my mom was a very good cook. But um, I was different from my sisters because I loved sour flavors. I would love to eat lemons just whole. Or, Or I would open the refrigerator and in those days... I'm really old. So in those days we had real lemon juice, you know, and we would keep it in the refrigerator. And by the time I could barely walk, I, I'm told I would go open the refrigerator and drink it. But, um, basically I think I am, I do have a very sour palate. I love salty, sour things. And I like, you know, really bright flavors. So it makes sense to me that it would probably be lemons. (laughs) Lemons are ex- an extremely sour taste for a child. Right, yeah. That's really quite unusual. Yeah. Yeah, I'm a real sucker for sour and salty. I mm. don't deal well with bitter, mm. um, but I really love that sour and salt. And that, so I think it works quite well, spending so much of your time with Latin food, that there's so much beautiful sour notes in there so true and and there's you know lime juice lemon juice oranges and grapefruits and bitter oranges naranja agria they're those bumpy like seville oranges oh yep and um they do a lot of marinating and you know we've driven a little tiny vw bug all over mexico when we did our first foray into studying the food there and uh, came back after a month and opened our little tiny border grill that was in 1985. And that's with your business partner. Yes. And you guys have been working together. 38 years. 38 years. So tell us, how did that kind of first come about? So how did you meet? When did you decide that you were going to kind of open this, this, at that point, small cafe? Right. Well, we were, um, we met in a kitchen, in a very professional French kitchen called Le Perroquet in Chicago. I had already gone to chef school on the south side of Chicago. Susan had gone to chef school in uh, New York at the Culinary Institute. And um, I had my sights set on this one job because it was the best restaurant in town, in my opinion. It had this beautiful, very, very rustic and kind of nouvelle cuisine, fresh French flavors. And I tried to get a job there as soon as I graduated from school. And um, the owner just laughed me out of the interview and said, you know, maybe I could hire you as a 
coat check girl, but you know, we, I can't put you in my kitchen. You'll cause chaos. Because, Why? because you're a pretty girl and we only have, you know, wow. bad guys back there. And I, uh, I said, no, really, I, I just went to chef school for two years. I worked at Maxime's of Paris in Chicago. I know how to do this, you know. He couldn't be convinced, but I started a letter campaign, and I sent him a letter every week, and I called him every week, and he finally, after about six weeks, gave me the, all right, come in tomorrow, $3 an hour. And uh, so I came in, and then uh, literally two months later, I think he was so, you know, amazed that I worked for half the price, and I worked circles around all the guys in the kitchen, and Susan came in to apply for a job, and he hired her right on the spot. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> It is such a shame that you had to go to that amount of effort to prove yourself. And we will talk about this later. um, You know, you've been here talking about kind of empowering women in the kitchen and the Me Too movement. And um, obviously we want to talk to you about your early story first, but good on you for pushing that. Because I think a lot of us would just say, oh, well, you know, fine. I yeah, can't, I can't do this for whatever reason. My face doesn't fit. My gender doesn't fit. Right, and but that's really incredible that you went. I to cried those all the way home from the interview, and I kept thinking, did I wear the wrong outfit? What did I, you know, what did I do? Um, but it's very interesting because you know his name was Jovan Trebojevic. He was a very old school Yugoslavian man who mm. came to this country, to the United States. Um, working on cruise ships and really doing high fine dining service. And um, he became one of my biggest champions and mentors. And one of, and he actually took me to Paris and got me a job to, after I left his employment. So, um, and up until he died just a few years ago, we were like very, very close. So I think um, he, I understood that, you know, he grew up in an era and with, mother and a grandmother who you know he just couldn't imagine working in and his his experience of the kitchen was like hard work and lots of you know heavy lifting and you know not a very respectful place um and which was sort of what kind of attracted me to the kitchen to be honest you know I loved from the I didn't go to college and everyone in my family went to college and it was like in those days, when I told my mother I was going to go to chef school, it was like saying, I'm going to, you know, be an auto mechanic <laughs> or a plumber. You know, it wasn't very hip and cool, and there were no sexy kind of celebrity chefs. So I think, I, but I loved cooking so much, and I still do. Every day I touch food, and I taste, and I, you know, make something. Where did that love of cooking start? I think it came from my mother. She's a she's a great cook. And I think it also came from my... I love to uh, care for people. You know, it's my way of communicating my love. Like my, my sons will tell you. <laughs> <laughs> I, but I, I do spend a lot of time, you know, thinking about cooking for others. And, and certain people inspire me to cook really well. And I, I get a real thrill out of cooking, you know, for people who are, who excite me, who I respect a lot. So I have a lot of dinner parties. Who's the most, who's the most, I guess, not scary, but nerve wracking person you've ever cooked for? Well, I once um, invited the biggest, most wonderful Pulitzer Prize winning uh, restaurant critic in the country, Jonathan Gold, and his wife over for dinner. And at the same time, I invited 
Jeffrey Steingarten, who's a, a critic for Vogue magazine, and he writes uh, from New York. And I, just about a couple hours before they came over, I said to my husband, what is wrong with me? <laughs> I, you're a sucker for punishment. <laughs> exactly. But um, it turned out, I remember so clearly, I made uh, pigeon, my very favorite thing to eat. And I learned that actually here in the UK. I, to, to, I fell in love with eating birds here. Um, all the little wild birds, the teal, the pigeon, the uh, quail, the all, you know, the, we don't have all those in the United States, but I'm I'm especially fond of um, squab or pigeon, and I, I made that for this, these food critics, and um, it turned out to be fine. We had a great time, and, and you know, we, well, I, 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 but you know what? It's when you challenge yourself to things like that, that you, when you feel the butterflies in your stomach, then you know you're kind of headed in the right direction. It's I important. I think you've got to have nerves for something that you're passionate about. It, it both drives your passion and also your nerves yes i'm i'm doing a movement with my hands that the listeners can't see but <laughs> bridles you it, yes exactly yes and um, we have wandered way off my, our original question which is perfect because that's what this podcast is all about it's it's a flowing conversation but so you met your business partner <laughs> in the kitchen at la Paroquet, and then uh we both kind of went our own directions and i ended up in paris working uh, for a woman chef named dominique namias in uh, 1979 and a little bit of 1980 and a two-star restaurant in Paris and I had a really it was the first time in my life I felt like wow I'm around my people because everyone in France you know um, they finish breakfast and start thinking about lunch and they finish lunch and they start thinking about dinner sounds about right yeah <laughs> and it wasn't how I grew up it, you know I I wasn't around in America people weren't that obsessed with food like that but I was and then Susan and I um, got back together after that year. She was working in the south of France, and we decided we'd open our own restaurant together. We were broke as could be. No, Neither of us had a penny. And um, so we just went back. I went to Chicago. She went to L.A., where we'd both come from. And within about six months, she called me and said, I have a little cafe. They need our help. Um, they, they've said, if you come out, they'll make us both partners, and we can do we can do all the the cooking and they'll you know they already had a business next door but it was an eyeglass business they didn't know anything about restaurants very different very very (laughs) but they really had a craving for espresso and cappuccino which they learned to love when they were designing eyeglasses in italy so it was a coffee shop but we started to change it ever so slowly and over the course of those five years from 1981 to 85 we um got it a huge following uh, got lots of publicity wrote up at write-ups in the newspapers and gourmet magazine and um we were just kind of bursting at the seams because it was literally a 35 seat cafe with a little bar and and the kitchen was about as big as this camper van to be honest and in the back of the kitchen was the bathroom that the, all the customers went to oh. <laughs> So whenever there would be, a, like, I remember Gilda Radner was in eating, and we really wanted to meet her because we thought, you know, Saturday Night Live, she was the coolest Give her thing on of, earth. Uh, tap water. Yes, we did. <laughs> you, you totally got it. We, we told the busboys, give her more water, give her more water. We want to make sure she comes back here. And then Julia Child came in uh, within the first or second year, and she was so great. 
she immediately came back to the kitchen That's and said, incredible. I want to meet you guys. And, you know, she was so tall and uh, yes. she was really, really, and it's such a champion for, for women and a great role model for, for us. So at this point you were doing, this is when you were doing sort of your French... French that was kind of morphing into lots of different global flavors. We gave ourselves total freedom to put anything on the menu we wanted. So, you know, we could have, you know, a confit duck leg on a salad. And then next to it, we might have Indian fritters, vegetable fritters. And then we might have like a Thai melon salad or, a, mm, you know. Sounds good to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But then we, when we moved city to a bigger location down the street, we had the, still had the little cafe, and that's when we decided we'd dive into Mexican food, and um, we changed that little cafe into Border Grill, which was a huge success also, and then we moved it to larger quarters, um, and we were in Santa Monica with Border Grill for 27 years, and then uh, just recently we closed that location, but we're reopening in a, another one. You know, at a certain point, the landlords really just... You're only working for them. Yeah. yeah, yeah. How much time are you actually spending in the kitchen? Because when you start, when you start expanding and things start getting bigger, and then one becomes two, and yeah. I know there's two of you, but still, there's when it's your own business. Yeah, that's so a much. Great that... question. It's very. It's a. It's something that you know, we both struggle with a lot because we're interested in growth and we're interested in expanding, but um, there are compromises. Mm. So. We, most of the time we spend with our staff is spent in the kitchen, tasting, talking, teaching, giving, you know, a, we, we, you know, approve all the specials, but we also give our staff a little bit of room to be creative on their own. We're very big collaborators. It must actually be quite a, um, quite a nerve wracking thing to put your trust in your staff and walk out of that kitchen and know that they're going to deliver what you what you would want to deliver for yourself. Um, and I can imagine that the first time that you, you weren't in service, that must have been quite difficult. Very. Yeah. yeah. And I think it kept us from growing for a long time. But, you know, um, as we all mature, we get, you know, different things excite us. And now I feel more excited about... I'm 61. And I've been doing this since I was 17. So I'm more excited about teaching and mentoring and really um, instilling confidence in my team so that they can, you know, go on to do great things. A perfect segue into talking about some of the other things that you do. I'd like to talk to you about the James Beard Foundation, if I can say it. Yes. Um, and also we mentioned earlier that you um, were here today talking about the kind of empowering women in the kitchen. So which one should we start with? Let's start with the James Beard Foundation. Yes, it's um, it's a wonderful organization and I'm on the board of trustees and um, I got a James Beard Award early on in my career uh, back in the 80s. Um, but, but, you know, we've always been known for the awards. It's mm. like the big, yeah. big the James Beard Awards. But in fact, in the last seven or ten years, we've really tried to shift to um, having an impact on the food system and kind of following the United Nations Sustainability, uh, Sustainable Development Goals. There's, you know, zero hunger. There's um, some, there's 17 goals, but some around gender parity, 
zero hunger, uh, curbing food waste, growing animals and vegetables with respect to the planet, and mm. and ec- food justice, you know, around making sure that everybody on our planet gets to eat a good, solid, uh, nutritious meal and have what they need to grow and thrive. So those things really excite me, all of them. I, I wish I weren't so... Um, I, I joke around at work that I spend about 35% of my day on nonprofit work. <laughs> That's your passion now, yeah, isn't it? it? It is. Did that, did putting all of these things to change the move to no waste or very little waste, did that start in your restaurants? And then you kind of just went, okay, this is working so well, this has to work everywhere else. I wish I could say it's working so well. It's, a, it's always a work in progress. I was, you know, I was raised at a time when my mother had lived through the Great Depression and through two world wars, and she, you know, instilled in me a real sense of the value of every single scrap of food. So our restaurants always have run with very little waste, but it becomes harder and harder when you're the employees that we have now didn't grow up with that kind of influence at all. I was going to say that actually because you think about and we've spoken to a couple of people on the podcast um food historians about the fact that this you know we came out of World War 2 with without a food waste problem because it was all about eating nose to tail and um sustainable foods local food seasonal food all the rest of it and I think it's almost our generation and younger that are spoiled to the point of actually it's not good no that you can walk into a supermarket in november at 11 p.m and buy kiwi fruits in the uk and it's it is an education program now that needs to happen isn't it and there's such an abundance in in certain places and then there's a real you know lack in other places on the on the planet and I think that that is also really difficult I think that you know the way at the Beard Foundation we've decided to attack the food waste situation is a couple different ways but one is we developed a curriculum for cooking schools so basically really getting into the heads of the kids when they're younger and Mm. thinking about all the different ways that we can affect uh, food waste and also a lot of celebrity chefs these days are using their platforms to, you know, espouse really great practices and being, and we're so creative, you know, we have an ability to take um, Dan Barber, who is a wonderful chef in New York at Stone uh, Blue Hill and Blue Hill at Stone Barns. He takes uh, the leftovers from brewing beer, the leftover grain and processes it and puts it in his bread. Excellent. That's yeah, really interesting because there there's is another there's a bread here toast. Yes, yeah, I know toast that. ales. That's um, so cool. Yeah, so that's that's really interesting because they've obviously come at it from different sides of the world, but using that waste in the same way. Yeah, well, they they are using wasted or bread that's stale, yeah. Yeah. and they're making beer from it, right? Yeah. So it's the other way. It's around. so yeah. great though, and I feel like um, so a lot of chefs are are you know taking food out of the waste stream and putting it into their dishes and then you know talking about it and making it hip and cool and and I think uh in many cases in many ways the other things that we're working on at Beard are like sustainable seafood and um keeping uh overuse of antibiotics in Mm. farm animals out of the food system 
and really advocating for you know a, a food system that is sustainable part of that is eating a lot less meat but meat that's really grown with care mm-hmm. and um you know regenerative farming is a big thing that's happening now in california we have a fund called restore california that restaurants are donating one percent of the check of every diner to a fund that is is encouraging and with with financing um farmers to switch to a regenerative farming because there are um, i'm currently reading i'm a few years out but i'm currently reading farmageddon by philip limbury um and he talks about in california the kind of the massive chicken farms and the massive um the mega farm mega dairies and it is really interesting that actually that all came out of World War Two, and with very positive intentions, which was to feed everybody. But actually, it's now a self, kind of self-sustaining. We, we don't need it anymore. We don't need it anymore, and it's not. It's wreaking havoc with the, the environment, and that's where I think. Um, but we're changing pretty rapidly in California. I I feel very. Very, As I say, I'm a bit out of date with this book. I'm fortunate to be living in California because we, we you know, have a a high percentage of organic farming. We have a lot of really great products that are produced. Amazing. Um, The farmer's markets are just overflowing with with every chef I take to the farmer's market in Santa Monica, which is probably the best. They all tell me it's the best in the world. It's, you know, we have 75 or 80 farmers. Adding it to the list. Yep. When uh, At The Source on tour goes to America. Good. We'll, yes. we'll, uh, we'll come, okay, and we'll come find to the you. Border yeah. Grill and then we'll go to the Santa Monica Farms yeah. Market. That yeah. would be fantastic. So let's talk about empowering women in the kitchen. Yes, well, um, you know, the Me Too movement hit in the United States about uh, 18 months ago, was it? No, or two mm. years, almost yeah. two years. Mm. And it's interesting because um, it was a big shock to me. I owned my own business for so long and I didn't really, I felt, I, in retrospect, I, I must have been very insulated from mm. what was going on, really, because I learned how not to manage people uh, in most of the kitchens I was training in. <laughs> so our kitchens have always, and our restaurants have always been really inclusive and really, I've Susan and I have made a huge effort to just make the make the restaurant culture look like and you know respond to our environment so lots of people of color lots of people with all kinds of gender you know on the spectrum wherever they land and really a place where everybody was included is included that's that's our that's our thing at work but you know i realized that one little restaurant isn't going to make that big a difference and i really want i really wanted to feel like I felt a little bit like I'd let down um, my the generations coming behind me because I felt when I was seventeen and I went to chef school I felt like oh I got this you know I'm gonna I'm gonna turn this industry on its upside down and by the time I'm sixty you know people are gonna really respect women and so it kind of came as a huge shock to me yeah. I mean look a girl can dream can't she and it's interesting that where you started. We, you were told to, to go away because you yes you know so it's really interesting that because I also feel I've I've been in a situation where I haven't really struggled with any of that myself so I feel I don't know how I can help somebody mm. who is feeling like no one's taking me seriously because I'm a woman or no one's taking me seriously because um, my gender is 
this no one's taking me seriously because my my cultural heritage is this where, where do you start what how do you how do you actually affect that change well um for me what i'm doing is every time i get invited to do events all over the world all the time and um part of the criteria for me saying yes now is you know well what does the community look like is it half women half men is it it's are there people of every color you know I don't really want to be involved in, in an event or a you know be on a panel or be cooking for a dinner if it's me and five white guys. Yeah. You know, I just I, so then I'm just sending that subtle message that you know if you this is these are my standards and I want to be part of that if you're willing to you know reflect the real world. Mm. And then I think also we're at the James Beard Foundation we have these women's empowerment programs that are really taking off. And um, part of what we do is we bring um, women entrepreneurs together for sort of a, a business school boot camp because part of what women don't get often is, you know, a, a real literacy in the finances and how mm -hmm. to grow a business. Yeah. So we'll do that and um, you apply for the scholarship and then you for free we bring you to the college, we put you up for 10 days, we have intensive classes or, and you get to really explore what you're doing with your own business and how... Because in the restaurant business, you don't have time to go to business school. Mm. I never went to business school. I, you know, I went, graduated from high school three in three years instead of four, and then I just dove into my career. So, you know, these are a lot of the women that we help are are in that same kind of situation. We also do an, another thing. We've done six of these around the country. We're going to continue to do at least six a year, where we take about sixty women and bring them together for a day and a half to learn how to vision like think about their their next steps where they want to go do they want to if maybe they're going to open a business or they own a business that they want to expand and then we teach them how to um how to pitch their business how to you know go to funders how to speak and get get the attention of bankers or you know people who invest in restaurants and then the next day we actually have some people pitch their their business their ideas their business plan to uh, a group of investors who only invest in women. That's a fantastic opportunity then. And we've had some real amazing successes happen. So it's already, this is only the first year of the program. And is that just in the US? So far. But we, you know, I'm, I'm, everybody at Beard was excited that I was coming here. We, of course, we love England. We love the English. And... I feel like there's a lot of such commonalities between yeah. between your country and the United States, and I think that there's um, the 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 opportunity to expand and to just share best practices. You know, mm. it, it, it's not even expanding; it's more like just you know spreading the word that this can be done, this can happen. We also have a mentorship program, which is really powerful for both the mentors and the mentees. You know, because I've been a mentor for many, many women over the years. And kind of a loose kind of thing where I just say, call me once a, a week at, on Fridays and we'll talk for half an hour. And then, you know, sometimes it grows into more. Sometimes it only is once a month. But just having someone older than you who's been who's through. Been through that. Yeah, that's so powerful. It does help a lot. It sounds a lot to me. It's confidence building. You're you're just giving structure to building that confidence. Well, when we raise our sons, we raise them to be confident automatically. 
And when we raise our daughters, we don't. We mm. just don't. And not only we, as I'm a mother, um, but I think society. We just, you know, we remind women that, oh, you can't open the door. I'll open it for you. <laughs> or, mm. or, But that's good manners. Or, you know, it's just these subtle mm. little ways that we keep uh, reinforcing that, you know, you can't. And I don't know that it's, it's not even... I wouldn't even say it's done on purpose in any way. It's just I, so ingrained. Yeah. So so even my own sons, who ha- grew up with a very strong mother, and my husband, who's wonderful, stopped working 16 years ago to help take care of the kids and never went back to work. And, you know, he's thrilled and happy. But even my own kids, I think, um, I feel have been influenced by outside forces, you know, and their, their ideas around women. So I think we have a ways to go, but I also feel that there's, that this Me Too thing has just split it open, you know, completely opened people's minds to listening to each other and hearing each other in a different way and taking women more seriously Mm. and also some I have to say some of the things that I endured and put up with I didn't think that they were that bad and now that I've listened to all the stories and the women who've been through what they've been through I realized that you know I was harassed I was abused no yeah Yeah, so I just I didn't you know I, I it's almost like I put blinders on and I wanted to get ahead as fast as I could and if I gave any energy to the fact that I was not being treated fairly, it just was uh, going to take away from my the energy I needed to go forward. So what's the first step for, it doesn't matter whether man or woman owns a business, because we're so ingrained, or we have these beliefs and these things so ingrained in us, yeah. that it's it's difficult to change that regardless of as you said you know female boss male boss I mean when I grew up in Australia well when I worked in Australia it you know I worked in a lot of places that were majority women and it was very much a culture of tear each other down as opposed to build each other up so it's I don't think it's just men no but women women do it to themselves as well yes so what's the first step like what what is a tangible thing that you can say to someone, make the change in the kitchen, front of house, um, in any business. I think just starting the conversation, you know, we're having the, after this whole thing blew up almost two years ago, Susan and I looked at each other and said, you know, I mean, I don't think we have a problem here, but would we know for sure? We have 450 Mm. employees. So we immediately went uh, to them and said, you know, look, we just want to start a dialogue. We want people to be able to talk about your feelings at work and how you how things are going and you know if you're uncomfortable you need to tell us and and if you don't want to tell us or you don't want to tell your supervisor here we gave him a toll-free 800 number that uh at the end of it is somebody we pay and you know so they call and they say look you know the dishwasher or the the you know the head chef made me feel uncomfortable i don't i think he's a good guy but I just want him to know, and I can't tell him because I work for him. Mm. So then we can tell him, you know, we've had an anonymous complaint, and you just got to be more aware. And and I think it's, um, and then people can start talking with each other. I don't think you always have to go through an intermediary. Mm. Ideally, you you get the confidence to be able to talk to but each other. But that's the point, isn't it? It's it's if you want 
too confident to say to this person, hey, you actually made me feel really, really uncomfortable, there is that option there for them. So do you think that in, I mean, two years is a short amount of time, but do you think that change is happening now more so, or it's definitely been that catalyst that's... I do. I think it's been a really healthy catalyst in so many ways. And I also feel very um, optimistic about the, the hospitality industry because we're really good at taking care of people especially our guests mm. and we need to just turn that skill inward Absolutely. and do make sure we're using it with each other because we know how to do it mm. you know and it sounds so simple doesn't it it does <laughs> it's always the way though isn't it when you're sat here chatting or you think well we just need to do that we just need to be kind to each other we just need to we just um, need to be kind to ourselves we just yes, need to speak, exactly. speak to each other and just say hey that didn't make me feel great but of course when you're in the moment of course that's not that's not going to happen because you're stressed you're busy you're on shift you're you're a bit scared of that person or or any myriad of reasons but, but. you know even there i have a friend in 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 sacramento who has a restaurant he's a head chef and um after Tony Bourdain committed suicide, there were two or three chefs in the Sacramento area who also committed suicide. And he got very, very concerned and started working with some mental health professionals from, I think, um, a big hospital group. And they actually started having these conversations in kitchens all around the city and and giving people a a new vocabulary about how to talk about, you know, how they're feeling, Mm. which is something I think, you know... We're all craving human interaction and having a connection to each other, but I think we put on our little, you know, Teflon jackets and go out in the world every day and we don't allow ourselves to be vulnerable and allow ourselves Mm. to really connect. And and so I think there's a lot that's changing in in the world, at least in the world that I'm involved in. (laughs) Should we finish on a... Yeah, on a on a happy note. I'm curious because you love so many different cuisines, and you were talking yeah, we before really we started re- recording, yeah. talking about you know oh, went to Thailand, yeah. came back with that, went to Mexico, came back with that. So, what is your perfect three course meal? Any cuisine doesn't even have to match because you know people always say oh you know it has to flow. It doesn't actually doesn't even have to be three courses. A it dream can be meal. ten courses if you want. A dream meal. Hmm. Boy. That is hard, though, for a chef. You know, it would probably be, you know, something fairly simple. But we do, um, I love to eat Asian food. I love Asian food. And because I cook Mexican food a lot and I've cooked a lot of other things. And I, when I go to Asia, it's like, you know, just like heavenly. Mm. But I often at home, um, I'll cook, I make different kind of stir fry things with kimchi a lot. We have a beautiful, big Korean community in Los Angeles. That's just vibrant and amazing. Yes. Roy Choi. I love Roy. He's lovely. Good guy. I love him, but Roy, I love you. (laughs) He's great. He's super. He's he's exactly who you think he is. I've been watching him on Chef. Yeah. He's been really great. He's a poet, you know, and a really amazing guy. Um, Sorry, I guess, you know. (laughs) Sidetrack. Yeah, sidetrack. So, but when it comes to food, I am really, really interested in the basic flavor of the food. You know, when I buy an ingredient, I, I, you know, I want that 
taste to shine through the dish. I don't want to mask it too much. Mm. So I'm, I'm always looking for those kind of purities of flavor, but I also love really strong spice. And, mm. you know, I'm cooking um, Tuesday night with Fergus Henderson. We're doing a, um, a dinner in, um, in, at the American Embassy, and I'm using Alaskan king crab, which is one of my favorite things to cook with. And I'm making. Um, I like to. I like to take the juice that that comes out of it when it. It always comes frozen because they fro- freeze it on the boats, and it's just amazing. Well, I, I have had it live once, but I take that juice and I mix it with passion fruits, and I make and then a lot of habanero chilies. I actually I bought some habaneros here. Have you seen them? Yes, they're incredible. But look. These are these oranges. <gasps> wow, aren't they amazing? And these yellow ones taste really yeah. good. They're super spicy too. But anyway, these chilies I'm going to put with the passion fruit and make sort of an agua chile. And then I'm going to um, use bunches of vegetables, crispy, crunchy vegetables, to put in the um, in the marinade. So it's be like half vegetable, half crab, and then this bright passion fruit chili kind of flavor with lots of herbs. That sounds amazing. How many so people that, are you cooking for? I think it's seventy-five. Is this enough chilies? Yes. Well, I got a chili per person there at the moment. That's yeah. a lot of chilies. Yeah, I'm going to leave you each one of these yellow ones, so oh, you can taste them you. at home. They're not too spicy, but they're they got a great perfume. Mm. Really, and the brown ones quite they're, hot. They're quite. Like they're Scotch called bonnets. yeah. They're called chocolate habaneros. Oh. And then these are, I think, um, the spiciest. These red ones that are wrinkly. I'm going to probably use mostly these yellow ones and a little bit Just of those to be safe. Yeah. That sounds absolutely delicious. But you didn't answer the question. Well, that would be one course. How about that? Right, okay. <laughs> and then, um, well, oxtails, I love. Yes. So cooked. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I like really meaty, kind of unctuous cuts. Like, I like the, the shanks and the oh, feet and I think the I need to tails. Come to LA what are you serving it with? Eat your food. Oh, I'd have that with maybe, like, I love uh, celery root. I have a feeling you're going to say celeriac. <laughs> it yeah and then maybe a dessert a lemon dessert i make a really good lemon hazelnut cake Mm. that i put fresh lemon segments supremes Mm. all over the top and then a little bit of nut meringue on top and put it back in the oven and then powdered sugar and lemon ice cream that sounds can you please invite me over for dinner and cook that exact meal i will (laughs) sounds perfect we've pretty much run out of time we we haven't really talked very much um we haven't talked about your own show um there's all sorts of things that we haven't talked I about think it's but... probably been covered by so yeah. many people don't worry right. this was a great conversation i really enjoyed all the topics and you know i am really passionate about them so i am so happy i got a chance to share no it's fantastic and thank you so much for joining us in our uh, in our camper van and um it's brilliant that you're here at abigaveni we we love it here it's such a fantastic vibrant food community that kind of gathers once a year and yeah, it's amazing i'm glad you're enjoying it thank you we barely scratch the surface on everything mary sue does so if you want to find out more make sure you head over to at thesource.com for our show notes which include links to mary sue's ventures and things we discuss in the episode if you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more food stories from people all over the world please tell your friends share this episode and write a review so that we can keep growing and recording with amazing people like mary sue We'll be back soon with another awesome episode. Until then, over and out.